Good morning. It's good to be back together again. And what a great song to uh, start off our time, uh, Jesus Paid It All. That will be certainly quite relevant as we go, uh, go through this. Um, so I'm going to hold this uh, card up. Does anybody who was here last week know what this has to do with our message? Anybody? All right. What if I said there was a little Hallmark logo on the back? All right. Does that give you a clue? Hallmark's logo since 1944, I believe, is when you care enough to send the very best. And uh, that struck me as I was thinking about this, these two messages. So hence the title, when you care enough to give the very best. So uh, hopefully you'll uh, remember that as we go through this. Today's message is part two of two messages about giving to start off the new year. As I said last week, we're doing it in general because God has a lot to say about our giving. And it's not something we often speak about. Remember, someone counted that there were 2,350 verses in the Bible about giving, which is just about twice as many as there are about prayer and faith combined. And we're doing it specifically now because our church family is operating under a deficit budget for this year. And since we cannot obviously live with a deficit budget year after year, we're committed to spending time this year seeking God's will for our church going forward. So we want to first to be praying together as a church daily to see what God would do. And please check the bulletin uh, every week. There's a prayer uh, that we put out there that we'd like to invite all of us to be praying together for that week. And the elders will be meeting with uh, Donna Sedell, our church treasurer, at our meeting on January 23rd to review our first quarter. And please be praying for us for that time. So put that down in your calendars, uh, Tuesday, January 23rd. So this morning, we're going to look briefly, or review briefly, last week's lesson from Malachi 3. We're going to look at some key New Testament passages about giving, and then we're going to spend time with a few practical suggestions that come out of these passages. Uh, so before we dive into that, I'd just like to pause for a moment of prayer. I'm going to use this old Anglican prayer uh, for us this morning. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. And what we are not, make us. In Jesus' name, amen. So our review from Malachi chapter 3 last week regarding the giving of the people of Israel, we saw God's instructions about their giving. They were to give a tithe, that is 10% of all their produce that went to support the Levites, the priests who worked full time to offer the sacrifices and to maintain the temple. We saw God's assessment of their giving. He says they were robbing him by not being faithful and bringing in their tithe because their hearts were not wholly devoted to him. And then we saw God's twofold challenge to them regarding their giving. First, he said, turn your hearts back to loving and obeying me. And secondly, test my ability and willingness to provide for you by bringing me the whole tithe and trusting me to give you all that you need in return. And we saw the truth that giving is a matter of the heart, not a matter of money. Well, let's look at some important New, New Testament principles of giving. So I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians. It's in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 
chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. The context of these passages is that Paul has been collecting money from various churches to provide relief for the believers back in Jerusalem. He is encouraging the Corinthians to fulfill their promise to participate in that offering using the churches of Macedonia as a model to inspire them. So we're going to look at these three passages out of these two chapters to see what God has for us today. So this, we're going to start with 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 to 5, where we read about a wealth of generosity from these churches of Macedonia. And if you're familiar with the Bible, the churches included Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. Let me read those verses. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty has overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Paul observes that two things came together in a strange way in these Macedonian churches that were facing a severe test of affliction. He says their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty. An abundance of joy and extreme poverty. These churches in Macedonia could have asked to not participate in this collection because of their own difficulties. But they did not ask to get out of it. More than that, they begged Paul to be allowed the favor, the privilege to participate. Can you imagine? Someone begging, no, please, I know you think we don't have any money, but we want to give to this. Please, let us give. They begged Paul to be allowed the favor, the privilege to participate. Well, what compelled them to this abundant joy and this surprising wealth of generosity in the face of extreme poverty? Well, Paul says in verse 5, this was not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, then by the will of God to us. They committed themselves first to the Lord. They turned their hearts to the Lord and then committed themselves to supporting Paul and his team in whatever way they could. Giving generously on their part, this wealth of generosity became a natural and joyful outflow of their love for God. They willingly gave, as Paul says, according to their means and even beyond what they could really afford. And notice that Paul is not commending them for the amount that they gave, which we don't know. He doesn't say how much they gave. But for how much they gave in proportion to how much they had. He is commending them for being generous over and above what they really had to give. They cared enough to give their very best. They cared enough about God that they were willing to give the best they could for the needs of others. So, this wealth of generosity. Well, let's jump down in chapter 8 now to verses 8 and 9, where we read about the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 8. I say this not as a command, 
but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. In his discussion about finances, Paul reminds the Corinthians and us of the grace that Jesus extended toward us. He says, though Jesus was rich, yet for our sake he became poor. Jesus enjoyed all, the, all that heaven had to offer, the wealth, the riches, the fellowship, the communion with God. He enjoyed all that heaven had to offer. But as Paul says in Philippians 2, that though Jesus was in the form of God, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, though he was rich, yet for our sake became poor so that by his poverty we might become rich. By his life and his death and resurrection, we might receive the riches of eternal life with him and become heirs of all that God has for us. Jesus, who was rich, became poor so that we who were poor could become rich. And notice the mixing of spiritual and material riches here. Paul is talking to these Corinthian believers that the tremendous spiritual riches that they have received from God through Jesus should be more than enough motivation for them to generously give their money to the needy brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. Joyful and generous giving will be the natural outflow of love and gratitude for what God has given us in Jesus Christ. And look again at what Paul says in verse 8. He says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. He says he's not commanding them to give out of some sense of duty or obligation, but he's appealing to them to get out, to give out of genuine love. We know the verse of John 3:16: God so loved the world that he gave, gave his only son. Well, John says in 1 John 3, 16, I always find this analogy so fascinating. John says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. We should give out of an abundance of gratitude, not because we feel forced or obligated. We can give generously because God has been generous with us. When you care enough to give your very best. God cared enough about us to give us his very best, his only son. In turn, our only reasonable and logical response should be to care enough about what God has done for us to give him our very best. And one way this is shown is by, we how, by how we give to others. Well, let's look at our third passage, 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 to 8. 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 to 8. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. 
Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Notice how verse 6 starts. He says, the point is this. Anytime you see something like that, you should sit up and pay attention. It means the author is about to give you an important truth. Paul has been speaking, and now he's going to give you a summary statement. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. He's using farming terms here to paint for us a picture. If you put a few wheat seeds in the ground, you will get a small wheat harvest. But if you put a lot of wheat seeds into the ground, you will get a large harvest of wheat. Well, let's talk about the sowing part first. Now remember, Paul's not talking about farming. He's talking about the giving of our money. So the sowing here is referring to whether you give your money sparingly or bountifully. And let's look first at verse 7. He says, each one must give as he has decided in his own heart. His own heart. The amount of our sowing or our giving is determined by our heart attitude. This is just like we saw in Malachi last week, that giving is a matter of the heart, not a matter of money. And Paul says here that there are two kinds of hearts. There's a heart that gives sparingly, and that heart is one that gives reluctantly and under compulsion, if you see that in verse 7. I looked up those words to see what the original Greek words mean. I don't speak Greek, I just had to use somebody else's uh, expert opinion, but I looked these, to see what these words meant. Reluctantly means out of sadness, grief, pain, regret. And it's used of people who are mourning. When I thought about that, it became almost comical. So as I reach into my pocket, to offer my money for sacrifice or for, for the offering, it's almost like I'm taking it to a funeral and saying goodbye to it because I'm never going to see it again. <laughs> it just it be, becomes comical. As we're giving our money, we are mourning its loss instead of being joyful in the opportunity to give. He also says it's not only reluctantly, but it's under compulsion. That word means distress, out of necessity or duty or obligation. It says, I don't want to, but I will. Paul says that is a heart that gives sparingly. It's reluctantly and under compulsion. On the other hand, the heart that gives bountifully is one that gives cheerfully, he says. God loves a cheerful giver. That word means prompt, willing, joyous, happy. The Greek word is actually hilarious, from which we get our English word hilarious. To give hilariously, to give over the top. This is so fun, so enjoyable that it's over the top. And Paul notes that God loves this kind of giver. 
Well, after what showing, or showing what sowing sparingly and sowing bountifully looks like, let's look at the difference in the two kinds of reaping. Because Paul says if you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. If you sow bountifully, you'll reap bountifully. Well, what about the reaping? Well, what does reaping sparingly look like? Well, if you look in these verses, I find it interesting that Paul does not say in this passage what reaping sparingly looks like. I believe by that that he's telling us that the one who gives sparingly will not receive any of the benefits that Paul is now going to lay out for us for those who give bountifully. In verse 8, Paul summarizes for us what reaping or harvesting bountifully looks like. And so as I read verse 8 again, listen for Paul's emphasis here. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. He uses words of abundance seven times in this one verse. All, abound, every. So let's not miss his point. We can be generous because God is able to give more than enough grace so that we will have enough for everything he would have us to do. God is able to make all grace abound so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Well, look at me now with in verses 10 to 14, as Paul outlines what the generous sower will harvest. What will this bountiful sower reap? And I found eight things. There might be more in there, but I found eight. Three of them alone in verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food. God will be sure that you have enough for your needs. If you give, God will be sure you have enough for your needs. Then he will supply and multiply your seed for sowing. He will be sure you have enough to continue to give. So not only will he give you enough that you have enough for your needs, he will give you enough that you can continue to give. And then he says he will increase the harvest of your righteousness. Increase the harvest of your righteousness. I once heard a great illustration of this harvest of righteousness. What is this? It likely means more than this, but it's no less than this. When Laura and I attended a financial seminar when we were young, yes, we're not young anymore. Well, I'm not, anyway. <laughs> and early in our marriage, we developed some principles of how we were going to handle our money. Well, perhaps you've heard something like this before. If you look at that picture and let that sink in. I've heard it said, you've never seen a U-Haul trailer attached to a hearse. That's another way of saying you can't take it with you. We're all aware of that, right? You can't take it with you. But the speaker reminded us of the truth illustrated here when he said it this way. He said, you cannot take your money to heaven. 
All right, that's fair enough. But he went on to say, but you can send it there. All right, you have me on that one. He concluded by saying, you can get your money to heaven by investing in things that are going there. Now he really had me. You can get your money to heaven by investing in things that are going there. And what is going to heaven? People. People are going to heaven. I find this to be a very helpful perspective. A large part of the harvest of our righteousness is the eternal return of investment in people. A large part of the harvest of our righteousness is the eternal return of investment in people. You cannot take your money to heaven, but you can send your money to heaven by investing in things that are going there. I just feel like I need to let that sink because it's had a profound effect on my own understanding of how God would have me to give. Well, let's look at verses 11 and 12. We see two more benefits the bountiful sower will reap. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Their generous giving was supplying the needs of fellow believers. There were believers in Jerusalem who were in severe difficulty. There had been a famine in the land. And so their generous giving was supplying the needs of fellow believers. That by itself would be sufficient. But he says, in doing so, there was an overflowing of people giving thanks to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. So the, Paul is saying, Corinthians, you give the money, but the thanks isn't coming to you. The thanks is going where it should go, to God. Their generous giving was certainly supplying the needs of fellow believers, but that generosity was overflowing in people giving thanks to God. Well, we see two more in verse 13. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. Those whose needs are met are not only giving thanks to God, Paul says, but they are glorifying God. They are lifting God up. They are making much of God and who he is because of your generosity. Not only that, he says, your generosity will allow your confession of the gospel of Jesus Christ to be seen in practical ways and not just heard. You're just not making a statement of faith in Jesus and what he has done for you. You're actually living that out in a practical, tangible way that can be seen by others. You are living out the confession of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then finally, I find an absolutely remarkable benefit in verse 14, and actually one that I missed until very late in my preparation. He says, while they long for you and pray for you, 
because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. They long for you and pray for you. The generosity that Paul is encouraging the Macedonians and the Corinthians to was not just providing things that were needed physically, but along the way they were serving to build relationships. They were serving to build relationships. Because of the generosity of God's people towards those in need, Paul says they long for you. They're praying for you. They're being connected to you. There's a relationship that's being built there. Wow. If you look at all of these benefits of the sowing bountifully, all this is part of the harvest of generous giving that Paul was summarizing in verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. And after laying out all these blessings that God will give to those who are generous in giving, no wonder Paul is overwhelmed and has to stop almost and shout out in verse 15, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. And what is that gift? Well, the gift is not a what, it's a who. His son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I believe it's important to say at this point that there's some mystery here. This is not a formula for accumulating material wealth. We talked about that a little bit last week. This is not a formula that if you give more, God's going to make you rich. No, this is not a formula for accumulating material wealth. God does not say exactly what he will do and how he will do it in each individual life. For reasons known only to God, he will give some of us more and he will give some of us less. And for reasons known only to God, we will have seasons of life where we have more and seasons of life where we have less. But he promises that if we trust him by being generous in our giving, regardless of how much we have, he will be sure that our needs are met. He promises that if we trust him by being generous in our giving, regardless of how much we have, he will be sure that our needs are met. We can give generously because of God's trustworthy character. Not because this is a formula, but because of God's trustworthy character. Well, let's look at some practical applications for us here in Grace Chapel in January of 2024. And we'll do that by using four questions. Question number one, should I give? Yes. God is looking for 100% participation from those who are followers of Jesus. As we have seen, your willingness to give reflects your level of gratitude for what God has given you through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Remember, Paul says, God loves a cheerful giver. All right, I can hear it now. Does that mean that you should not give if you can't give cheerfully? Well, I can't give cheerfully, so I'm not going to give because God loves a cheerful giver. 
No, it means that if you can't give cheerfully, you should confess to God your lack of cheerfulness and ask him to give you a heart of generous gratitude for what he has done for you. Ask him to help you say with Paul, thanks be to God for your inexpressible gift. Question number two, well, how much should I give? Well, that's not quite as easy a question to answer, so we're going to spend a little time here. There's a sense, as I was reflecting on this, that living under the Old Testament law was easy, in this regard at least. God clearly commanded that people bring the tithe, 10%. That's easy, simple. You have 10 sheep, you tithe one sheep. You have 100 sheep, you tithe 10 sheep. But nowhere in this passage does Paul mention a tithe. Rather, the word that shows up in these passages, I don't know if you noticed it, is generosity. Generosity is the word that shows up. But generosity has no amount attached to it. I'd like you to look with me at Mark chapter 12 to see how Jesus' definition of generosity is so much different than ours. I'm going to read Mark 12, verses 41 to 44, a story that many of us are familiar with. And he, Jesus, sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich, rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Jesus says that this one poor widow who put in two small copper coins gave more than all the large sums that many rich people contributed because those rich people contributed out of their abundance, out of their surplus. She gave everything she had. Apparently her love for God compelled her to give more than she could possibly afford. And with this illustration from real life, Jesus defines generosity not by how much you give, but by how much you give compared to how much you have. Generosity is not defined by how much you give, but by how much you give compared to how much you have. I find this to be very challenging. I don't know that I've ever given everything I had to live on. Nor is God calling us to do that every day or we would have nothing to live on. But the principle here is very compelling and very challenging. I recently listened to a podcast where the speaker was asked the question, do you have to tithe? His answer was no. You don't have to tithe. If you want to give 11% or 12%, that's fine. The tithe is not the pinnacle of giving, but it is a good starting place. He went on to encourage everyone to always be evaluating how they could be giving more, regardless of what level they currently are giving. There's another principle here that I heard as a young believer that I have found helpful over the years, and that is in the form of a question. If the law required 
What does love require? If the law required 10%, what does love require? This question gets to the core of the difference Jesus made when he came. So what did Jesus do about the law when he came? And you can turn here if you want, but I'm going to be referring to Matthew chapter 5, just for a couple things. Matthew 5, in verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. To fulfill them. And then he gives two practical examples about our relationship to the law. The first is in verse 21. He says, you've heard it said in the law to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So regarding the command to not murder, he expanded the application of that command to say that murder goes much deeper than the actual act. In fact, he says, if there's anger in your heart, that makes you guilty of murder, even if the act is never committed. He gives a second example in verse 27. He said, you have heard that it was said, again in the law, in the Ten Commandments to be specific, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He expanded the application of the command of the law to say that adultery goes much deeper than the actual act. He says that lustful desire in the heart makes you guilty of adultery even if the act is never committed. In both cases, the most important factor is not the outward conformity to the law, but the inward desires of the heart. Well, let's apply this thinking about the heart's desires to this issue of giving. Well, the law commanded to give 10%. Well, to use Jesus' examples, giving goes much deeper than this outward act, this outward compliance of giving a certain amount. It actually originates in the heart. And we have an advantage that the people of the Old Testament did not have. And that advantage is that Jesus has come. Jesus has come and has given his life for us. So what would a person give if their heart was motivated by a deep gratitude and love for God's mercy and love towards them, rather than a heart motivated only by outward duty or obedience? What would a person give if their heart was motivated by a deep gratitude and love for God's mercy and love towards them, rather than a heart motivated only by outward duty or obedience. So, if the law required 10%, what does love require? I can't answer that question for you. Each of us has to answer that question for ourselves in the light of God's inexpressible gift, Jesus himself. Should I give? Yes. How much should I give? Generously. When should I give? A few pages back in 1 Corinthians 16, Paul says this. He's talking about the same collection about a year earlier. He's writing to the Corinthians. He says this, 
Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. He says, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. I believe what Paul is saying here is that we should give regularly. The first day of the week is Sunday. The, the believers in God used to meet on Saturday, the seventh day, but after Jesus came, the resurrection was on Sunday, the first day of the week. That became the day when the church meets together to celebrate Jesus' resurrection. So Paul says that giving is actually part of our worship as we gather together. Giving is part of our worship as we gather together. And Paul instructed them that they should be making collections every week when they meet together, which is why we have offering boxes for you to be able to give. Regularity is good. It cultivates the habit in our own lives. It provides stability of income for the church operations. And that doesn't mean you have to give every week. For example, if you get paid every week, well, you could look to give every week. If you get paid once a month, then giving regularly might mean giving once a month. But giving regularly is a principle that I believe we see in God's word. Should I give? Yes. How much should I give? Generously. When should I give? Regularly. Well, and to whom shall I give? In Malachi, we saw that the tithes and offerings went to the Levites as well as to those who were poor and needy. Well, what about us in the New Testament? I believe that that same model of tithes and offerings is useful in thinking about our situation after Jesus has come. Your regular gift, as we just talked about, which I believe is the equivalent of the tithe, should go to your local church to support elders who work full-time as pastors. We see that in 1 Timothy 5. Support other staff persons who are paid to provide for various ministry needs. And at Grace Chapel, the general giving also goes towards the Benevolence Fund for the deacons to help those who are needy. And it also goes to support missionaries. Or as John says in 3 John, we ought to support people who go out for the sake of the gospel. So the regular gift should go to the local church. On the other hand, the offerings are things that are above and beyond your regular giving. It's not that you take your regular giving and divert it somewhere else. No, you have your regular giving, and then offerings are above and beyond your regular giving that can go wherever you feel God is leading you to give. There are special offerings taken at our church for particular needs. So, for example, this month we have the project for Amnion Crisis Pregnancy Center. That's over and above what you would regularly give. Or, as we heard earlier, the church community closet that we're using to provide needs for basic items for people that have needs for those things. So those are opportunities to be able to give. You can give additional benevolence offerings for the deacons to use to help those in need. Or there may be organizations or individuals outside Grace Chapel that you want to give to. Those are the offerings that you may choose based on what God has called you to do. So let's tie this up. There's no way that we can cover every possible concern or question in a message like this. 
And I'm sure that I've left something out that could have used some more attention or that didn't quite speak to your situation. So I would invite that if you have any specific questions, I or any of the other elders would be happy to talk to you and pray with you about how this may work in your own life if you want to try to figure that out. But I firmly believe that God has guidance for all of us about this most important subject, whatever our situation. So let's circle back to the main lessons of our last two weeks together. Last week, we saw that giving is a matter of the heart, not a matter of money. Giving is a matter of heart, not a matter of money. And in some sense, this week is no different. This week, we talked about giving is rooted in the truth of when you care enough to give the very best. When you care enough to give the very best. Our giving should be rooted in Paul's conclusion in 2 Corinthians 9, 15. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. How will you? How will I? How will we respond to this inexpressible gift? I'd like to close our time in prayer. And I just, I don't know how God may be speaking to you at this moment about these things. Just give you a few moments to reflect to yourself. Uh, and then I will close in prayer. Father, as we reflect on what we heard this morning, I close with the songwriter's words about your inexpressible gift of Jesus Christ. What riches of kindness you lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We stood beneath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Father, may we live and may we give with a deep and growing appreciation for the inexpressible gift of Jesus Christ, the riches of kindness that you have lavished on us. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen.